reading is going to be from Luke chapter 14, verses 1 and then 7 through 14. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said also to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers and sisters or your relatives or rich neighbors, in case they may invite you in return, and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So I know this is Melanie's favorite part, is Caleb sharing time, but I don't think I have any big surprises for her today. I have two older sisters, both of whom are married and have been for a few and several years now. And both of my older sisters were kind and gracious enough to allow their annoying little brother to ask me to be a groomsman in their weddings, which I was. And, um, and of course, as part of the wedding party at the reception, I was invited and asked and had a place at the wedding party's table, which, depending on, your, depending on the wedding, of course, they can all be a little different. Sometimes the table is elevated. Sometimes it's decorated a little bit more nicely. It might have nicer silverware or plates or, or whatnot. And the wedding party is asked the gr- after the bride and groom. The wedding party usually eats second. So it's a pretty high place at the wedding. And certainly I felt honored to be a part of my sister's weddings. I'm glad they're both married and I will not do it again, but... <laughs> It also makes me think of another time. It was a wedding that I actually didn't go to. My parents and one of my sisters went. And I know it was 2003 or 2004 because it was when there was a blackout in the northwest, northeast of the U.S. And in the middle of this blackout that was two and a half or three days, my parents and my sister drove from Michigan down to the middle of Alabama. 15, 16 hour drive. And my aunt and uncle, one of them, who lived on the other side of Michigan, also drove down. So they left their houses in darkness, <laughs> managed to get to another state where they could get gas to keep going, and went through all this effort to go to my cousin's wedding. And at the wedding reception for my cousin, my parents and my aunt and uncle were sat at a table, basically, as they describe it, it was in another county, but uh, it was basically the table the furthest away from the wedding party as you could get, which says something about my family that we're not going to get into today, but demonstrates this extreme of being part of the wedding party, being sort of part of an honored entourage, and then being the lowest. <laughs> now, my parents agreed to go to that wedding, and I agreed to be in my sister's wedding, so to a degree, we were culprit. We, we chose to be part of those events, but apart from that, there was not a lot of choice in where we went. 
as part of the wedding party, you're expected to sit in a certain place and you're expected to dress a certain way and do certain things. And when you're a guest, you similarly don't necessarily have a lot of choice. Again, depends on the wedding, but oftentimes there's a seating chart and you're placed somewhere. Sometimes that's just how it goes. So today we're focusing on a parable that Jesus told, and I want to say that parables terrify me. <laughs> I, uh, if you remember the fire and brimstone redemption preaching of your childhood, that's how I feel after attending Trevecca when it comes to talking about parables, because it was put into me with fire and brimstone to be so careful to talk about them, because parables are so easy for us to try to bring ourselves into them, our own hang-ups, our own issues, our own thoughts and feelings, and even just our own place in life. They're so easy to bring our culture into and to completely miss the point of the parable. But this parable I, I like because it's very straightforward. Uh, there's no secrets. You've read it, I've read it, you already know what it's about. It's about what this whole day has been about, which is, it's about humility. Jesus says, you should be humble. Got it. Nailed it. All done. Let's go home. We're good. So instead of, of talking about that, and that is the reason for the parable is be humble, but it's not the point of the parable. It's not the point. And so we'll get there. So let's, instead, let's talk about humility today, and let's talk about why that's important. Humility doesn't always work the way we want it to, and neither does the wedding feast. If we were going to read into this parable just a little bit, very carefully, imagine, imagine in your head everyone you've ever met, there's no exclusions, any family member, any friend, any acquaintance, the girl at the cupcake shop, cupcake shop, whatever, I don't care, it doesn't matter. We can all think of a person who is more than happy to exalt themselves. That when they show up to your party, they take the place of honor. Maybe they do it by being loud. Maybe they do it by their dress or their jewelry, something like that. Or maybe they just find a spot where everyone's going to notice them when they come in. We all can think of a person like that. And similarly, we can all think of a person who we would describe as being very humble. A person who would come to our party and would be happy just to be there, just to have been invited, just to be able to spend time with us, and would feel that sense of honor just from being invited to the party. And sometimes in our world, those who exalt themselves, who take that place of honor, for whatever reason, the host never seems to come to them and tell them, get out of here. <laughs> Someone more important than you is here. Somehow they find that place and they stay there. And somehow the humble take the low place. And for some reason, the host never makes it to them and tells them, friend, move higher up. Let me honor you in, this, in the presence of these people. It feels a little unjust probably, to this group. But, but I think, if we're really honest with ourselves, that it's also an example of exactly what we, in our pride, want in the world. Because when the exalted person has sat where they desire, has stayed there, and is living life, they're happy. And the humble person, 
is perfectly happy just to be where they are, to be in any seat. And so we see the prideful person who is happy, and we see the humble person who is happy. Is that not our definition of peace? No one's going to start a quarrel about being exactly where they want to be. There's not going to be a breakout or a fight over these two people who are in a place that makes them happy. But I would tell you today that pride is caustic to your soul. Even when you're satisfied and even when you're happy and even when things seem like they're pretty good. So you've invited me up here and you better believe I'm going to read some Thomas Merton today. I have two quotes and there's a third printed. So let me read the first one for us. In a sense, pride is simply a form of supreme and absolute subjectivity. It sees all things from the viewpoint of a limited individual self that is constituted as the center of the universe. If I am the center of the universe, then everything belongs to me. I can claim as my due all the good things of the earth. I can rob and cheat and bully other people. I can help myself to anything I like and no one can resist me. Yet at the same time, all must respect me and love me as a benefactor, a sage, a leader, and a king. They must let me bully them and take away all that they have. And on top of it all, they must bow down, kiss my feet, and greet me as God. Humility, therefore, is absolutely necessary if man is to avoid acting like a baby all his life. To grow up means, in fact, to become humble, to throw away the illusion that I am the center of everything and that other people only exist to provide me with comfort and pleasure. Unfortunately, pride is so deeply embedded in human society that instead of educating one another for humility and maturity, we bring each other up in selfishness and pride. The attitudes that ought to make us mature too often only give us a kind of poise, a kind of veneer that makes our pride all the more suave and effective. For social life, in the end, is too often simply a convenient compromise by which your pride and mine are able to get along together without too much friction. Now, knowing Merton a little bit, his, his words there are meant to be a little bit over the top. They're meant to be a little bit extra inflammatory. But they're not wrong. And that is the central thing, the thing that I think about when I'm asking myself, am I dealing with pride right now? It's that simple phrase, am I currently the center of the universe? The answer is always no, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to act like it's yes. And Pride's interesting. I don't think they're ranked in order or anything, but (laughs) it's interesting that the first commandment is thou shalt have no other gods before me. I've always, well, not always. There were many years I really didn't know why we had the first commandment, actually, believe it or not. I know it sounds, sounds weird, but the thing is we have the second commandment. Thou shalt make no graven images, thou shalt have no idols. So I was like, well, if we have the second commandment, what's the first commandment for? I don't get it. I don't get it. But thou shalt have no gods before me is not just about golden calves. Sometimes it's a mirror. And pride, when it's full-blown, can look, as, look like other gods, such as perfectionism. This is my world and my universe, and I'm going to make it perfect. It can look like nationalism, 
and it can look like a workaholic. And don't get me wrong, work gets busy. We all have those periods of time. We all deal with what we're dealt. But you know the person I'm talking about, the person who chooses to throw themselves into their work and to not have anything else. Their work is their universe. And of course, it's not healthy. And even in our pride, we're always looking for a secret. We're looking for a trick. And again, you all have a brain. I don't have to tell you this. You've all probably heard this passage before, and there's a really easy secret. It's this one secret, right, that Jesus doesn't want you to figure out. You can be prideful. You just have to sit in the low seat. Uh-oh. Sorry, Jesus. Gotcha. I don't have to change at all, except for where I sit. No big deal. I'll be prideful, sit low, be exalted, case closed. We're good. So, like I said, that's not the point of the parable. The reason, yeah, is Jesus wants you to be humble, absolutely. But that's not the point. What is the point? Let's read another Merton quote. This one's a little shorter. It is almost impossible to overestimate the value of true humility and its power in the spiritual life. For the beginning of humility is the beginning of blessedness, and the consummation of humility is the perfection of all joy. Humility contains in itself the answer to all the great problems of the life of the soul. It is the only key to faith with which the spiritual life begins, for faith and humility are inseparable. In perfect humility, all selfishness disappears, and your soul no longer lives for itself or in itself for God. And it is lost and submerged in him and transformed into him. Just as the parable is plain that Jesus wants us to be humble, the reason for it is also plain. I don't have to do any thinking today. It's great. Jesus says it right at the end of that section. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The person who exalts themselves, there is nowhere for them to go but down. But the person who humbles themselves, who takes that lowest seat, there's nowhere for them to go but where? Up. And so I'm here to tell you today to remind you that God wants to exalt you. God wants to exalt you. But he can't do it if you're taking the highest seat. Can't happen. When you're at the top, there's nowhere to go but down. But if you will humble yourself, and if you will take that lower place, it makes God so joyous, so happy, because God says, now I get to exalt you. I get to come to you and say, friend, move up. Humility is what rescues us from ourselves. Humility is what rescues us from ourselves. Last week, I hate reducing it in this way, but last week Emily gave a really lovely sermon on how we as Christians should be devoted to God. And we should. Part of being devoted to God means that we should be humble. But I also want you to understand that God is wholly devoted to you. And in fact, he was first. 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I know that God is wholly devoted to you, and you know how I know? Because you're sitting in this room right now. God could have made you somebody else. He could have put you somewhere else. He could have not made you at all. But he did. He made you to be here and to exist because he loves you. And God wants to exalt you. The point of the parable is to be humble. But the reason is that. And it, it makes me think of all sorts of things, all sorts of images come to mind. I think I thought a lot this week about sometimes in the benediction, Caleb will say, God loves you, and there's nothing you can do about it. And God struck again this morning. I won't call anybody out for it, even if they recognize these. But there's this wonderful little key tag on here that was just staring me right in the face. So I just had to, had to include it. This says, I love you more, the end, I win. That's how God feels about you. And when we're talking about and finishing up talking about humility, again, God was first. Sorry. Uh, Even that can be a blow to our pride. Well, I want to love you first, God. Sorry. You can't. And the answer's in front of us every Sunday, every week. And it's right there. That's it. Sorry, I love you more. The end, I win. That's it. And if every Sunday I come up here and this is how it ends, is me doing this, I'm okay with that. Because this is the great mystery. This is the reason we're Christians. This is the reason we exist. This is how God exalted himself to be able to exalt us. This is how God redeemed, restored, and created relationship. That when we could not, God did it anyways. And so that's the message today. That yes, we should be devoted to God. But a reminder that God is also devoted to you. And I think we forget that sometimes. Hannah's going to come up and she's going to play a song that I asked her to play. It's uh, an old one. I remember singing in high school. And I want to make sure to point out that I I really appreciate Hannah taking on the the mental work of adapting the song a little bit to make it a little more up-to-date, a little more inclusive for our tastes. Um, And you know, honestly, I, I don't have... There's no, like, specific or super special reason I picked this song other than... It's just been what God put on my heart for a couple weeks. And I just felt this is how this needs to end today.